Business School. Welcome, everybody. This is the Business School podcast. We learn how the world of business is being redefined. My name is Daryl Pereira, and I'm a senior content strategist here at IBM. Today, I'm really happy to be joined by Suzanne Livingston. So, Suzanne, if I could ask you to tell us a little bit who you are, what you do, a little bit about your background. Thank you so much for having me, Daryl. It's a pleasure to be part of the podcast. My name is Suzanne Livingston. I am the vice president of engineering site reliability engineering, product development within the IBM sustainability software unit. And in sustainability software, we make software products that help organizations achieve their sustainability goals, whether that's improving their posture when it comes to carbon emissions, all the way through to how to better run their operations, all the way to what they buy from other companies and how sustainable those products and services are. And how did you get to the to where you are? How did you get into this role? What, was this what you always planned to do? Is this something that <laughs> not at all? <laughs> so I um, I actually started in IBM Research uh, when I was in grad school, and I was a developer building new tools to help people. At the end of the day, really spend less time doing busy work in their workday and getting more critical thinking done. And we did that through a host of different types of innovations. And I'd say that theme has run true of all the different products that I've created at IBM. After I I was in research, I went and launched four different new product businesses for IBM, all focused around this theme of productivity being more efficient, some within the financial services space, some specifically for developers, some to connect supply chains and bring uh, transparency into the supply chain. Now, I've uh, in the last few years, I've chosen to focus, I've moved from product management and launching new products to building technology with the engineering team, kind of getting back to my roots of being a developer, where I think I can make a significant difference in helping engineers be more efficient with not just how they're spending their time. I think engineers can be quite good at being self-managed, but actually having a strategy that aligns to the work that they do. And so that every line of code it's actually something that a customer or a user will end up getting value from. So trying to reduce a lot of the waste that's in the engineering system. And in terms of you talked about sustainability software, in case folks are wondering what kind of software that is, could you just talk a little bit about some of the products and some of the areas that fit into this area of sustainability when it comes to engineering? So within IBM, we have a number of different software product areas. Some of them are focused on data and AI. Some are focused on security software. Another area is focused on automation, tooling. We have an area of sustainability. And sustainability isn't just about ESG or CO2 emissions tracking. For us, sustainability is about the work that we do. So we, we make tooling that is for companies to use to be more productive and efficient. One area of our products is focused around like heavy equipment, heavy asset management. Think about planes, trains, automobiles. Think about um, nuclear reactors, hospitals, buildings, um, you name it. So this product happens to be on all seven continents. So yes, in Antarctica, there are assets that we are tracking in this particular tool. And out in outer space, we have satellites that are being tracked. 
And they're tracking in the sense of being able to maintain them, knowing when it's time for them to be maintained, when it's time for them to be updated. Also, when there's a failure, what's the cause of that failure? There's a lot of opportunity to lengthen the life of these assets so that we can get the most out of them over time and um, you know, not incur the environmental damage associated with uh, the continuous changing of heavy assets and, and equipment and machinery. So that's on one side. Another side is about real estate management. So taking entire buildings and being able to understand their utilization, be able to you know, do some of the mechanics around lease accounting, space planning, floor planning. And then we also have an area um, that's focused on supply chain management. So we have technology that will allow you to see inventory levels when you're making a purchase. And a number of uh, U.S. retailers, in fact, you probably have used some of them you know, when you go to execute that cart. Uh, we'll actually tell you if you can get this in a certain amount of time, just based on inventory that we're tracking in different locations across multiple systems. And then also across multiple supply chain partners, see across from a farm all the way to a store where the transit, where the process of creating food products, creating um, non-food products uh, has taken. So you can actually trace from origin to consumer. And I think consumers, right, have been pushing a lot for sustainable products. So not just label it sustainable, but prove to us that there are sustainable practices here. So we have a lot of technologies that we've created in order to help identify where the source of food, where the source of a product has come from, what are some of the manufacturing key performance indicators that have gone into creating that product. Like imagine you're in a store buying a pair of jeans and you want to know how much water, how much emissions went into creating that specific pair of jeans. So a host of technologies all centered around operations, asset performance, real estate performance that we believe are fundamental in making significant improvements to how much energy we use and how much impact we make in the environment. So not just buying carbon offsets, but actually changing the practices inside your organizations. That has to be linked to the work that you do and the operations of your organization so that you can see where to focus the attention. That's really what we mean when we say uh, sustainability software. It's be able to visualize what your current output is and then understand what systems, processes, assets, buildings, locations, supply chain partners are impacting that output the most and then be strategic about making choices on where you're going to focus for major reductions. And that that together gives you a full picture of how your organization is making an imprint on the planet. That's fascinating. And it's, it's a recurrent theme, this idea that, that we cover sometimes on the podcast, that you think sometimes when you think about sustainability in these areas, we might think about certain areas of the industry or markets. But like you're saying, like the difference that something like when you get into, especially when you look at big business and whether it's a big retailer or something like that, just the amount of difference even what may be small differences to a big retailer and because of the scale of the business, it can have massive impacts. And then one area then where this seems to come up is that then obviously 
we rely quite heavily on our governments to help, you know, especially in this time now where we're thinking about things like climate change and how we adapt. And governments are beginning to just, for the reasons that you state, are beginning to look to business to make sure that where we can make cuts and where we can be more energy efficient that we are. Is that something that you're seeing? How do you characterize what you're seeing in terms of how the environment in which the software lives is changing at the current time? It's a it's a unique time right now. We all wish, right, that we didn't need to have the grand push of the government in order to push us to make the best decisions for our planet. But unfortunately, you know, sometimes we do need that and we're seeing the effect of that right now. So just looking at, at last year, so last March, the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission, the SEC, they shared publicly that they're going to start to standardize around climate-related disclosures for investors. You know, they're they're a part of this growing awareness around the importance of ESG initiatives, environmental, social, government initi- governance initiatives, and are, are asking companies to back up their goals with documentation. So if you're a publicly traded company and you, you know, submit your financial reporting, you're also being asked to submit your ESG reporting. And where we are to date, so so that was last March, the SEC, you know, unveiled their plans to do this. And I think it was November of last year that all of the call for comments had been brought together and um, now are being analyzed for what I expect we're going to see this year on well, what does this disclosure entail? What are these rules? What are the mechanics behind it? So expect to see that throughout this year. But ever since the SEC announced these plans in March of last year, a lot of companies have come forward asking, where do I begin? This is an enormous effort. You know, what can I do to get started? And so our organization mainly focused on technologies to support missions like this also has a consulting organization that have seen a tremendous increase in interest just laying out what should my goals be uh, where should I get started on this journey so yeah that's the timeline that we've seen a tremendous amount of push in the last year and a half and I expect that to continue into 2023 and in terms of the main challenges, the businesses face when it comes to meeting these regulations, which obviously is so important. We need to make sure that we that we're able to address these regulations. What would you say in terms of how what are the challenges that businesses are facing? So I think the first thing is companies are coming to us saying, I don't know where to begin. And so they're not quite sure. First, we don't know what's going to be included in the regulation, but assuming that we're going to have some data that supports our sustainability goals carbon emissions output, what can we do in order to start getting confidence that we can accurately report on these numbers when these rules go into effect? So the first thing that you know we see companies doing is one, getting a, an ESG strategy in place. What should my goals be? What timelines do I want to achieve those goals in? Do I have the data available to me today? in order to understand where I am with these goals even today. And surprisingly, there's just, there's a lot of data quality issues, maybe unsurprisingly, 
So when it comes to just assessing where you are today, looking across all of the data silos and organizations that store some amount of this information now and assessing the accuracy of it. So make sure your data warehouses are cleaned up, that you have you know numbers that you can trust. And still we see a lot of manual data extraction, going through files, pulling out numbers, you know, rather than using tooling that can do this in an automated way. So there's just, there's a lot of data cleansing accuracy that needs to happen. I think the other challenge is teams are overwhelmed. They don't know where to begin. A lot of times they, you know, will rely on things like online calculators, which will help give them like an input or output spend model that tracks emissions based on materials used. You know, for example, a company might purchase some amount of steel for some dollar figure and then determine the quantity of carbon dioxide output equivalent that's released from there. But there's a lot of pushback on spend-based calculation. The methodology is very aggregated. Um, in some cases, it's dated. And you know you can see examples where the numbers are reflective of like scenarios from years ago. So how do you get more accurate figures here? I think a lot of organizations have started looking at supplier surveys, but those two can often have challenges in their accuracy because it's based on what somebody is submitting. So overall, just a lot of different challenges, data quality challenges, data collection challenges, over dependence on you know, data that could be out of date quickly, and just not knowing where to begin. And I too think that the levels of tracking. Again, we don't know what the regulation is going to ask us, but we expect that there's going to be, you know, data related to scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. And, you know, while scope one emissions and scope two are are fairly straightforward, right? Scope one emissions, these are your direct greenhouse gas emissions. These are the sources that you control, um, that your organization operates. Like, for example, fuel in your boilers, fuel in your vehicles, uh, what's running your furnaces. So anything that you're using, these are your emissions, that's your scope one. Scope two are your indirect emissions. So I purchase electricity to run my office. Um, I have steam, I have heat, I have cooling. The emissions are occurring somewhere else, but they are accounted for in my organization's overall uh, footprint. So scope two, again, you have bills, you have meters that give you readings. Scope three emissions are the ones that are the hardest to get. What are all the sources that have contributed to impact on the planet across the supply chain for, let's say, a given product or a service? So that's not just what you run, but what you've purchased from other companies, the transportation for it, as well as the manufacturing of it. And if you think about a product, right, it doesn't just come from one place and end up in another. It's gone through multiple transformations from, think of the raw materials that originate at a particular source and then get purchased and aggregated and manufactured and remanufactured into another product and combined and packaged. It's tracking the emissions across all of those sources, all the way to the consumer and then the consumer's usage of that particular product. You know, it's an incredibly dense amount of information and the methods that organizations are using right now typically forms 
asking suppliers to share this data with them is fraught with inaccuracies. In fact, so much so that um, two gentlemen who I follow, Bob Kaplan and Karthik Ramana, who Bob is out of HBS, and they actually both won the HBR McKinsey Award a couple of years ago around their work on Scope 3. You know, what they said regarding Scope 3 is that they're almost impossible to measure. Now, a car maker or an aerospace manufacturer would have to reach out to tens of thousands of suppliers and supplier suppliers and say, tell us how many greenhouse gases are in every one of the tens of thousands of components you buy from you. So it's, it's you know, in a, a way, there is no way for them to collect that information. However, you know, we've been working on technologies that allow supply chains to share this type of data at a product level, at a product category level, at a location level, and collect that directly in the supply chain. So you're not relying on forms, but you're actually relying on inputs that could be tied to backend systems that track this information automatically. So, you know, there's a lot of skepticism around scope three and ability for organizations to collect it. I think we're making tremendous headway in our ability to collect data from across the supply chain, but there's so much more to go, so much more to go. And I I think what I like most about Bob and Karthik's approach to thinking about this is that, you know, they're thinking about from a basic accounting standpoint where you're accountable for what you share, right? What you say about the production and the process that you follow. And so, you know, they refer to as e-liability accounting, and they, you know, assign down all of the outputs for products and services through the supply chain. In fact, I'll give you the link to the article so that you can share it in the podcast. But, you know, they also advocate for using technologies like blockchain for a immutable system of record. And, and that's exactly what we've been doing in IBM. We started a pilot last year with an organization who wanted to track carbon output equivalent through each stage of manufacturing from a chemical source through to a final product. And so every participant, in, and this was with one product, but every participant in that supply chain submitted data about their carbon equivalent for the stage of manufacturing that the particular material chemical product went through. And then we aggregated those at the end and came back with a number that reflected what we could collect from each of the different suppliers on their overall emission for that for that particular product. And I think approaches like this where you're putting the accountability back on the participant, the producer of that element is the way to make it produce forward because now we have a way to trace it back to an original source. And we also have a way for us to hold that source accountable versus taking you know aggregated data across multiple parties and then not knowing how to find who is the source and really validate it. That's fascinating, especially as I'm sure many people may realize just how complex things like supply chains get very quickly in terms of, you know, we saw a lot of it during COVID where things just weren't able to get to us largely because we just start to see that, you know, we're in it, we live in a global economy and so many things come to us from different places. So the ability to be able to then use technologies like blockchain to be able to open up and to uncover the data that surrounds all of this business and to be able to then map it and be able to, like you say, introduce these levels of accountability is really important. It's key. Exactly. 
And we have a lot of technologies that we create within IBM sustainability software, but we also use these practices ourselves, like in, in the creation of our products, right? So overall, trying to create an overall sustainable business ourselves. And then just so, yeah, and it's and sometimes it might be a little bit easier to understand in like we think of physical goods, like a car and all those pieces. But like you're saying, in terms of, you know, what you're doing on a day to day, obviously there's any human endeavor, right, is going to lead to emissions. And so in terms of where you look at software, and when you look at the IT industry, what do you see there in terms of, you know, whether there are potentially opportunities to be made in terms of around sustainability? Yeah, absolutely. So much opportunity. I'll also share with you another link. We we recently published a paper on um, the practices of software engineering that can contribute to better usage and utilization of resources. So we really, it all comes down to, in our case, how much power we're using to run the systems that we need to run in order to serve our clients. And so if you think about you know, just a simple transaction. Like if I were to just pay you, you know, let's say you bought me some coffee and I, I wanted to pay you back for that coffee. You know, it seems like a simple transaction, right? But it involves a huge network, complex network of interconnected systems, data exchange. And in some cases for the more complex software that we provide, um, run, you know, AI models that give you insight into when you should be replacing your assets. Like these are our systems that take a tremendous amount of complexity and energy to run. And so, you know, naturally what we all do when we are trying to service our customers and make sure that they, they stay whole, especially during times like, you know, the holiday peak season, we have a tremendous amount of customers who are e-commerce. You know, we, we had always over-provisioned them and we're not unlike Everyone else in the industry, you know, over-provisioning is, is common. Um, give more resources to the systems so that we, we don't fail when there's a peak in uh, usage or peak in demand. You know, I'd say that's fairly common. But also common is that there's a tremendous amount of unused capacity out there. So, you know, the more over-provisioned you are, the less you're actually using and needing, but the more that you're, you know, keeping powered on, right? So our team ended up doing an activity around how could we use AI to help reduce the over-provisioning, reduce our costs, reduce, you know, improve performance, but really scale, right? Size the environments so that way uh, we can meet the demand without over-provisioning. And just by way of example, like one of our systems that runs you know, e-commerce transactions oversized its resources by about 80% on one of the days in a, during the holiday peak season, one of the databases oversized around 70%, right? So lots of over-provisioning. And what they ended up doing was, you know, built, like I said, an AI model that helped us understand how we could optimize the systems that were part of in this case, in our e-commerce system. And by doing that, we were able to right-size the environments, which also ended up enabling us to have faster implementation when we were rolling out changes, faster results. Our team spent less time managing these resources that were over-provisioned or bloated. And then that also you know, helped us 
save a tremendous amount of kilowatt hours. So, you know, in total turned out to be like, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars worth of cost optimization, but uh, total energy savings was in the 4,200 kilowatt hours, just for like one example of a client using the system. And so I bring that up as an example of, we don't even think about hitting a transaction, like making a payment, making a purchase, and how much that can take in terms of energy and just how much less it could take if we were able to meet demand exactly where it needed to be, right? And if we can use predictive modeling, we can use mechanisms for meeting that demand without over-provisioning as a continuous practice. Imagine how much impact that can make across all products that are, you know, serviceable through software. So, you know, we look at it on, that's a very simplistic example I gave you too, because in that example, nothing's changed about the architecture of the system. It's simply provisioning the resources, elastic availability of those resources. There are things that we can do as we're writing software, right? As we're building our architectures, reducing complexity in, you know, the topology, reduce data transportation across hardware and software, design for efficiency, build in a way to balance resource constraints, recognize that there's power draws, clock speeds, idle hardware still consuming energy. You know, I think that there's a growing you know, group who want to create architectural designs that are conscious of energy consumption and usage in the long run and, and treat it as a resource constraint. Uh, maybe switching gears a little bit, but just pivoting on just when you talk about energy, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I know I'm, I'm sitting here in the West Coast, you're over on the East Coast, and it's you've driven halfway across the state um, to, to record this podcast and, you know, it's coming, it's gone 10 p.m. for you at night. And, and I, I'll say, I, I'm just, it, the, the level of intensity and the energy that you bring to being able to share your ideas, you know, after I know what must have been a long day for you. In terms of folks that are interested in getting into this space, would you have any tips and tricks, you know, things that you found successful? You know, what, what gives you the, the energy to be able to be impassioned? I, I was going to say coherent, but you've gone way behind coherence. You're well into impassioned in terms of, you know, what you feel for this area. Would you have any tips to anyone that may be starting, you know, earlier in their career? Oh, that's so kind of you. As a, as I sit here at 10 p.m. thinking, I hope all of this sounds coherent and understandable. So thank you for that. You know, I think like, so I was in business school too at one point and I did an MBA and then I went back and did a master's in engineering management. And I never really thought about a, a job, right? I thought about, you know, a career. And when I think about it, the long run, right? What is that impact that you want to make and that you want to leave behind? You know, there's something greater than, yeah, I want to write code all day, or I want to build new products, right? It's like, what kind of difference do you want to make? And perhaps it was the time when I had, and it's so cliche, but the time when I had my kids, um, so I was telling you earlier, I have 12 year old twins, when it really settled into me that you know, my time on this planet is finite and their time on this planet is finite, but there's going to be a, a period of time that I have the opportunity to help leave it in a better place 
It's as simple as that, right? I think we can do that while still creating new technologies that are going to take us into their future and beyond. And I, I think I'll still always be chasing that desire to have the most efficient work experience that you can, you, whether it's operationally in your organization or you personally in your productivity, because that is sustainability. The more that you're able to accomplish what you can accomplish using less of what the world only has so much of, then that to me is a sustainability win. So anyway, I welcome you to, to look a little bit more about the products and services that we offer. If you go online, ibm.com slash sustainability, you can learn more about them. But I think they do touch on you know every aspect of operations in an organization. And that's really where you can make, make a difference, right? Again, it's not about buying carbon offsets. It's about actually changing the practices that we have to make them more sustainable. I love that what you said there in terms of that idea of, you know, career job. Sometimes we use those terms interchangeably. You, you deliberately there didn't. You talk about the idea of thinking of, you know, what your career, where, where you do fit in, where you can make a difference. And so appreciate the fact that, you you know, you're obviously making a huge difference. You've had a very successful career and we'll, I'm sure we'll continue to. But I appreciate you taking the time today, Suzanne, to share with us. I know people can find you on LinkedIn where you share a lot of especially around this idea of the intersection of business, sustainability, software, engineering, that side of it. So if anyone's really interested, I'd, I would also encourage them to, to follow you there on LinkedIn, if that's okay. Um, but like- Absolutely. And if anybody has a question that you know they think would be worth me sharing more about, I'm happy to do that on LinkedIn too. So feel free to connect with me and drop me a note. Let me know what's on your mind. If you've stayed with the podcast this long and you're still listening, then you definitely have an interest and I want to hear from you too. So thank you. All right. Well, thanks again, Suzanne Livingston, uh, VP of Engineering at IBM. And you've been listening to the Business School podcast. Check out other episodes. We discover new emerging trends in business and we get leaders, academics, and folks that are working in business that will tell us what's going on and what's changing as this this area moves so fast. But thanks again, Suzanne. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you for having me. 